0: Let's open our Bibles to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3, as we continue our study in this epistle that that where Paul is speaking to his young protégé and teaching them, teaching him how a believer ought to behave in the household of God. How a believer ought to behave in the household of God, and specifically in this chapter the character of leaders who lead the church. In our previous study, we learned that the terms bishop, elder and pastor are used interchangeably in the New Testament, but are not necessarily synonymous. You see, each term expresses a different aspect of the office. Uh, The term bishop emphasizes the administration of a a church leader. The term elder emphasizes leadership, but especially in the spiritual realm. And pastor, of course, emphasizes shepherding, the tender care for God's flock. The term bishop is the term episkopos or episkopos, but episkopos uh, uh, was one who, who managed a large estate for someone else. You see, in the church, the, the flock does not belong to the bishop or the pastor or the elder. The flock belongs to God. We're under shepherds, and so as such, we should behave as that. We don't own the sheep. We are looking out after the sheep for someone else. An elder, especially one who is uh, uh, an elder who has to be, Uh, one who's gifted in leadership in the spiritual realm. The term for that is is presbyteros, and you probably hear, just like in Episcopos, the term Episcopalian, who came from that. Presbyteros, that's where we get the term Presbyterian. And then finally, the term for pastor is poimen. And poimen means a shepherd, so that one's pretty easy to remember. We also learned last week that God requires a standard of conduct from those who would occupy this office, this office that has three different titles, bishop, elder, and pastor. Now, before I go back into the qualifications for leadership, let me introduce this tonight by telling you this. I don't know if we have any attorneys in the room, but if we did, and uh, they would be the first to tell you that there's a particular code of conduct that is expected of one who would practice law in the state of Texas. And if you break that code of conduct, They will bring you before the State Bar Association, and if you've broken one of the codes that leads to that, they will actually pull your license to practice law in the state of Texas. It doesn't mean that you can't be forgiven of God. It doesn't mean that you can't do something else. It can't mean that you can't have a useful life, but you can no longer practice law if you do the things that the State Bar Association, any one of those things that the State Bar Association says are verboten. Also, if you're a medical doctor or any kind of doctor in the state of Texas, there's a code of conduct that is expected of you. And if you break that code of conduct, and there are several different ways that you can do that. You'll be pulled before the state medical examiner or the state dental examiner, and they will will pull your license. Because there are certain things that the state medical board will not tolerate with regard to the character and the behavior of those who practice medicine in the state of Texas. It doesn't mean they're a bad person permanently. It doesn't mean if they're a believer they can't be forgiven. It doesn't mean that they can't go on to do something else. It's extremely productive. But they can't occupy that position in our culture or in our society anymore, at least not in the state of Texas. Perhaps they could go to another state, but they'd have problems in the other state too, wouldn't they? Because their record's going to follow them. Now, some people have a problem with pastors having a code of conduct that's attached to the office. This is face. It. Some folks do, but what I would what I would tell you before we even get into the code of conduct more specifically tonight, mainly one of them, but we we introduced them last time. The twenty two characteristics. Does it make much sense to have a code of conduct for attorneys and for doctors, and I assume for plumbers or for for anybody that's got a professional association for CPAs? There's the same thing for CPAs, I'm sure. Does it make sense to have a code of conduct for that and then step back and say there's no code of conduct for the one who's going to lead the church? That's absurd. There is a code of conduct and it's mentioned in two different places. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 verses 1 through 7 and first and rather in Titus chapter 1 verses 5 through 9. These give at least 22 qualifications which may be grouped into four categories. One is personal character. The second one is public testimony. The third is family, and the fourth is ministry. Now, I have to confess, I apologize to you, I told you I'd have a list of, for, of these for you today, I just now remember that. I will, I will get it for next time, so you don't have to write all these down. Uh, I'll have a list for you, so it'll be printed out. Some of these qualifications naturally overlap. That is, any family failure will affect one's ministry or personal qualifications. Uh, and, again, before I go over the list specifically, I want to remind you, that no pastor's perfect. God doesn't call, uh, no, no pastor has any, has any possibility of any more, being any more perfect than you do. That's an impossibility theologically. Only the Lord Jesus Christ fits the category of perfection. Nevertheless, Paul does set forth a high standard for the office. And the reality is, every man understands, or should understand, before they ever accept the office, before they're ever ordained into that position, what the, what the standard of behavior is to be. So there should be no complaining after the fact. Any pastor who says, well, I didn't know that, should have been a pastor in the first place. You should have read the book before you decided to take on the job of teaching it. Now, the personal qualifications, we mentioned them last time. I just mentioned them again tonight for your review. The first one is temperate, which means avoiding extremes. The second one, under personal qualifications, was prudent. And remember, what we're doing is taking the First Timothy list and the Titus list and putting them together. The second was prudence, showing good judgment and common sense. The third was not addicted to wine, which means not abusing wine. This does not say the pastor can't have a glass of wine, but it says they can't have an addictive problem with it. And, of course, this would go into other addictive behaviors as well. Pugnacious is number four, not having a violent temper. Number five, in contrast to pugnacious, the the shepherd, the elder, or the bishop should be gentle, uh, being patient and considerate. The sixth qualification was uncontentious, being peaceful nature. So you see how some of these are overlapping, certainly. Number seven is free from the love of money, not being greedy for personal gain. And I joked last time, but it's only halfway joking. there are churches, even in our city, that think that this reads free from money. So they, they try to starve their pastors. That's sinful. Don't do that. Uh, That's not what the qualification is. It's free from the love of money. Number eight is not a novice. So we shouldn't ordain into ministry those who have just become believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. It happens all the time in certain parts of Texas. It happens all the time. But to their detriment, we need to wait a while. Let a a person develop some maturity before they're going to lead others. Just because someone may perhaps be a, a general in the military, if they're a new convert, it doesn't mean that they can be a leader in the church. It takes Time. So leadership in one area does not necessarily imply leadership in the church. Not self-willed. And this doesn't mean the pastor doesn't have a will. The pastor better have a will. The, better, the pastor better have a will that, that he's willing to, to stick with when he thinks it's right. But not self-willed in the sense of just trying to get one's way for the sake of getting your way. We need to be looking out not after ourselves but after God's plan. Now sometimes pastors are, are sensed to be stubborn. Just because they're not doing what you want them to do. But if a pastor is convinced that what he's doing is, is what God's will is for the church, then, until that's proven otherwise, cut him some slack. Not quit-tempered, again, one of those not pugnacious type of qualities: not being easily angered, loving what is good, being loyal to moral and ethical values. The twelfth characteristic is being just, which means being fair and honest with everybody, and not just the big contributors at the church, not just those who participate in the church activities, but everybody, being fair. Devout, there should be no one more devout in a church with regard to worship and their relationship with God than the pastor. You see, pastors need to lead from the front, not from the back. Pastors don't push people along. They get out front, and other people should follow. And the pastor shouldn't have to look behind very often to see if anybody's coming. Maybe, maybe an, an occasional glance from time to time. But the pastor's life should reflect Christian Christ-like values, and people should want to follow that. Self-control, being able to control oneself under adverse or tempting circumstances. So those are the personal qualifications that Paul mentions in those two books. Next, the public qualifications. The first one is above reproach. Let me stop here for a moment and point out that this is the first qualification that Paul mentions in 1 Timothy 3. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer or bishop, it is a fine work he desires to do, An overseer, then, must be above reproach. Now, most New Testament exegetes hold that this first quality, this above reproach quality, governs, to a certain extent, all the rest of the qualities. To a certain degree, all the qualities have to be filtered back through this one. To be above reproach means having no questionable conduct that would bring legitimate accusations, whether inside the church or outside the church, more on that in just a few moments. So the, the pastor should be hospitable. It's, a, it's a oxymoronic for a pastor to say, I, I love the ministry, but I don't care for people very much. Well, that's, that's what the ministry is, is people. And you, and you have to care for them. People have different ways of caring for people. A pastor may have a different way of caring for his people than a teacher has for his students. But there's still that heart that has to be there. You have to be a people person. The third public qualification is a good reputation with those outside the Christian community having a morally and ethically upright testimony to the unsaved. There are family qualifications. The first to mention is the husband of one wife. Now that will be our subject tonight. That's the most controversial of all these. So I've decided to take that one and we'll spend the rest of the time this evening. So I'll come back to that. The second one is manages his own household well. Now remember that... These, these characteristics cannot be separated out completely from one, from one another. So the, the idea of being the husband of one wife is going to be tied into managing one's household well. Being a spiritual leader in the family. Being the type of leader that the rest of the family wants to follow. If you're going to be that kind of leader in the church, you've got to first be that kind of leader in the family. If, if, you, don't have, if you don't have anyone in your family that desires to follow you at all, then why is anybody in the church going to desire to follow you? Because the family knows you pretty well. The church is going to get to know you pretty well. So sooner or later they're going to find out your flaws. We've all got them. Every pastor in this room, and there are several tonight, every pastor in this room has, has flaws, do we not? None of us are perfect. I'm grateful that this is not a list that, that, that ascribes or prescribes, rather, perfection. We, we can't do that. But on the other hand, there has to be consistency, even within the family. So it needs to be a husband of one wife, manages his own household well. Children who are under control with dignity. I mentioned to it last time, and some of you weren't here, but but pastor's kids, pastor's wives live in a fishbowl. It's very difficult for them. And, And many times they have problems with it. I appreciate so much, and I'm not just patronizing you now. I'm very serious. I appreciate so much the way you treat my family. And and it's always been that way. And allowed them to, my kids, to grow up. Most of you, or some of you, have seen them grow up. From little bitty tykes, they're now bigger than me. Or at least one of them is. You've allowed that, and I appreciate that. You You haven't put the pressure on them that some churches do. But children, a pastor should have children who obey respectfully. And those children in the fourth place should be children who are believers. Not accused of dissipation. Having children who display faith or faithfulness who are not living recklessly, who are not rebellious to their fathers. Those are the family qualifications. And then there are ministry qualifications. An elder should be apt to teach. In my view, there's no such thing as an elder in a church that, that doesn't teach or that can't teach. That's one of the qualifications. Every bit as much as husband of one wife. You have to be, you have to be blessed with the ability to instruct in doctrine. Holding forth, or holding fast, rather, the Word of God... Being firm in doctrine and not compromising scripture. Sometimes things that you teach are not popular. But you can't punt and say, you know what, I'm not going to preach sin. Because sin's negative. And I want you to feel positive when you're here. There's enough negative out in that world already. I want my people to feel positive about church. I want them leaving with a positive feeling. A direct quote from Newsweek. That's, that's silly. That's not holding fast to sound doctrine. That's picking and choosing that's being an eclectic minister, and we're never told to do that. We're, we're encouraged, to, like J. Vernon McGee said, to preach the entire word of God, the entire counsel of God to our people, and to do it with conviction. We are to exhort with sound doctrine. This is particularly a problem in Ephesus that's been dealt with by the Apostle Paul, encouraging believers by means of correct doctrine. And we need to be able to refute those who contradict. Not the funnest, not the most pleasurable thing in the world, but that, that the pastor has to be able to do that, to do it with gentleness, not pugnaciousness. It's not as though somebody disagrees with you and say, okay, out back. You know, we'll settle this man to man right now. That's not settling an intellectual argument by punching somebody in the mouth. That's that's not the way those things are settled. As a matter of fact, you just lost when you do that. But you have to be able to speak the truth in love, you gotta know the truth, you gotta hold to the truth, and you gotta be able to defend the truth. Again, issues that have already been brought up in Paul's first letter to Timothy. These qualifications clearly emphasize the character of the person rather than just simply educational achievements. Uh, Just because someone has achieved a a master's in theology uh, doesn't mean they're qualified to be an elder. that's, That's something that goes along with it, I believe, because before you can teach sound doctrine, you've got to know sound doctrine. You've got to be able to rightly divide the word of truth and handle it, but that's a beginning. It's not an end. In summary, the characteristics indicate that an elder is to be unselfish, of good reputation, a good family leader, and able to handle scripture. Now, that was last week. This week, we consider the most controversial of these qualifications, at least it's the most controversial in our day, and in my research of the literature, it looks like it's been fairly controversial all throughout the history of the church, and that is mias gunaikos andra literally meaning a man of one woman. Uh, since the Greeks used this term aner, which is also the term for man, uh, for their word for husband, and the term gune was also the, uh, is the term for woman, but it's also the term they used for wife, depending on the context, of course. Uh, the translation that's in most of our Bibles, husband of one wife, is valid and reasonable. So I, I guess I say that to begin with to tell you, There are no real serious translation problems here. We can't go back and appeal to the Greek to come up with our answer. I wish we could. We can narrow it down some, I believe. But we can't say, well, the Greek says this, therefore I have the definitive answer. Because all the scholars that study this passage uh, know their Greek as well. So it literally means a man of one woman, or a one-woman man if you prefer. But the better translation would be the husband of one wife. Over the course of the Church Age there has been controversy over the meaning of this phrase. We we'll, we see it in the early writing of the Church Fathers and we certainly see it today as well. In general, however, the further back you go, the stricter the interpretation, and I found that interesting. Because we must be careful not to allow our present cultural circumstances to alter our interpretive method. I'm acutely aware that most have formulated opinions about what it means to be the husband of one wife, and those opinions are strongly held. I know that. No problem. I simply ask that you listen carefully to what I present, and whether you agree or not, when discussing it outside these walls, accurately represent what I've said. In order to do that, you're going to have to listen carefully. Sometimes when we disagree with something, we jump ahead, and and then we we skip over the way that that a person validates their view. Uh, I just ask you that you listen carefully and accurately represent it. That's all. It's difficult, you see, to respond to false representations of one's positions. That's a logical fallacy. It's called a straw man argument, and Christians ought not to participate in that. Before mentioning the various views about what it means to be the husband of one wife, let me stress that, again, that all the qualifications for elder, pastor, and bishop are an expansion of what it means to be above reproach. That is the qualification that governs all others. The word, as it was used originally, meant not to be laid hold of, hence irreprehensible or unassailable, perhaps, You see, one's enemies can bring all sorts of accusations. But these charges are proved to be empty whenever fair methods of investigation are applied to one who is above reproach. With the church and in accordance with the rules of justice, this man not only has a good reputation, but this man deserves that good reputation. Again, not perfection. Any pastor that stands up and brings that as a standard is a fool from the beginning because they've just talked themselves out of a position before they ever got through the end of the sermon. This is not, this is not demanding perfection, but rather consistency. Now, for the various positions on what it means, first I'm going to give you two that are uh, rejected by the, the overwhelming majority of Protestants. I'm going to give you those two and then get them out of the way, and then we'll speak of three that Protestant evangelicalism does consider. The first is the Catholic view, where the husband of one wife, the wife is the church. And so the one who ministers within the church is married not to a a woman, but married rather to the church. That's where they get the view that the priest cannot be married. Um, This view lacks any biblical support and is purely traditional. Peter, who the church at Rome, recognizes as the first pope, uh, was married. Uh, Peter considered himself to be an elder in 1 Peter 5, verse 1. So those who hold to the authority of Scripture and not the the predominance or the primacy of tradition on a par with Scripture or tradition over Scripture would have difficulty holding this particular view with a straight face. The second view that we'll uh, dismiss rather quickly, I believe, is the view that the elder must be married. In this view, it's mandated that the elder be married, but, but Paul himself wasn't married. Now, Paul never calls himself an elder like Peter did. But Paul expresses in other places, particularly in his letter to the Corinthians, the advantage of remaining unmarried when it comes to ministry in fact, you recall, he says, you know, I'd, I'd advise you if you're going to get into ministry, you stay single like I am because if you're in ministry, you, the first ministry you have is to your family. And you've always got to realize that. And so for for these reasons, very few, very few would hold the view that the elder must be married. Now, in a particular church, in a particular circumstance, a pastoral search committee might very well say, this is the kind of man we want. We want somebody that's between... Forty-five and sixty, preferably that's, that's married, has two or three uh, teenage children, and they've always been perfect. They're National Honor Society kids, and all the—I mean, all these things. I've seen I've seen listings where where they where they make that a requirement that the pastor be married, and a church might have that as a preference. Perhaps they think that if a, if a man is married and happily married, then they would be able to counsel other married couples more um, completely. That's that's very possible, but in terms of a requirement from this passage, we just can't get that. From this, so we have the Catholic view and the must-be-married view that are, are I believe, to be rejected by Protestants. Now, the next three views find adherence in varying numbers among Protestants. And I've done what I've done is is draw three concentric circles on the board, and I'd like to introduce these terms that this way, and uh, and the, the the criteria will get tighter as we get closer to the inside of the circle. The outside circle, the first view, is not a polygamist. The first understanding that some Protestant evangelicals hold is that the husband of one wife means not a polygamist, or to have one wife at any given time. Polygamy, though, was not practiced to any great degree at all, in the Roman world outside of Palestine. Palestine, There are historical records of polygamy in and around Jerusalem at the time that Paul writes this. But it was not widespread, and it appears to have been restricted to the wealthy, the idea being that only the wealthy could afford to have more than one wife. Now remember that Paul is writing here to a Greek audience at Ephesus, Now, polygamy wasn't an issue, at least in the literature we can discover, not in any great way. It wasn't an issue at Ephesus. So it would be extremely unlikely that Paul's strict meaning here is polygamy. Now I want to point out, every Protestant evangelical would agree that it at least means not a polygamist. You see where I'm going with this? This, this is the, the very least one would hold to, and all of us, I would hope, would agree with that. That it means, at the very least, it means only having one wife at a time. But in addition to what I've said about polygamy not being a problem in the Greek world, particularly at Ephesus, now, adultery was a problem, to be sure, sex outside of marriage was a problem, but polygamy wasn't so much a problem. Having a mistress was a problem, uh, and openly having a mistress was a problem, but not, not uh, polygamy. But in addition, the phrase that Paul uses in 1 Timothy 5.9 to describe a worthy widow, he says, the wife of one man. And here we have the husband of one wife. There we have the wife of one husband. It's the same structure, just in reverse. In 1 Timothy 5.9, Paul uses that to, deter, to describe worthy widows, This must be understood in in somewhat of a parallel or similar way. The same author, just a couple chapters over. Since the phrase is somewhat unusual, it's safe to insist that the same meaning be applied in reverse, then, to widows. And there's no evidence at all in either Jerusalem or in Ephesus of polyandry, meaning having, uh, having more than one husband. Yes, it's, it's one of those things What's well, good for the goose, not necessarily good for the gander. You know, people say, well, well, polygamy was out there. But this same phraseology is used just backwards, and nobody claims in polyandry. Nobody claims that that was, was going on. Uh, that tends to weaken this view. I say this with respect. Although some good men have held and hold this view, it does not fit the context of what was going on either in this epistle or in Ephesus in general, and it is, with all due respect, weak at best. Every evangelical would at least hold to that, but it likely includes more. It goes without saying, again, that polygamy uh, is rejected by all New Testament scholars. But the vast majority of New Testament scholars and exegetes, commentators, are going to hold to a, a stricter view than just the fact that you can only have one wife at a time. One might also say, isn't that kind of a qualification for all believers? Well, Well, certainly it is. It doesn't seem like a very strict qualification at all. The second view is the view, and I'll come inside as faithful, to one's present wife. That's a little tighter, is it not? This doesn't mean that one can only have one wife at a time, but those who hold this view squeeze it in just a bit and say that it means the husband of one wife means to be faithful to one's present wife. And a careful search of the literature that's out there today reveals that this particular view is gaining popularity in in current circles. This view takes the position, and listen carefully now, because you might reject the polygamous view, but you may be getting closer to the view that you hold, this view takes the position that anyone can fail. And it is what a man is at the present, not in the past, that really counts. Adherence to this position recognize God's willingness to forgive any sin, including the sin of divorce. And once forgiven, no restrictions exist for serving in any capacity in ministry. But the question arises... How many times can a man be divorced and then serve as an elder? Is there a limit? This is where a great divergence of opinion comes into play. There are conservative New Testament scholars that, have, that are in the literature on record as understanding the New Testament to allow for failure in marriage and subsequent remarriage. But very few, in fact, almost none, believe that this passage allows for that circumstance to occur multiple times. If there are multiple marriages, one's ability to manage one's household would reasonably be called into question. the tightest view and that is the view that one is married once. This view appears to be the consensus view of the early church, the early church fathers. The only discussion that they had really was whether or not there were ever any exceptions to be made to this married once understanding. Some were ultra-strict in their understanding and held that a man was restricted from remarrying even if he was widowed. This, I believe, is going too far, and let me tell you why. If the governing factor for all these characteristics is to be above reproach, then it would not be unreasonable for a man to remarry once the bond of marriage has been broken by the death of his wife. Because there would be no moral component present to the breaking of the marriage bond in that circumstance. Unless, of course, the husband had something to do with the death of his wife. (laughs) Then, of course, there would be a moral component there. But the death of a spouse breaking the marriage bond does not imply any kind of moral component being present. So... There are few that would be as strict as some of the early church fathers who said that it means to be married once, and that includes a widower. And they would say that if a widower remarried, then, then he would not be eligible for that office. The early church was split. Uh, I would be one that would hold that that's going a little beyond what the text says because of the lack of a moral component in the breaking of the marriage bond. The more difficult question, though, is the question of divorce. And that's what you've been waiting for, so now you get it. Okay. Are there any exceptions to this breaking of the marriage bond? Some argue that if an exception is made for the widower, whose marriage bond has been legally severed, why would an exception not be made for the divorced pastor, whose marriage bond has been legally Severed, this is a legitimate question, and it deserves explanation and exploration. The problem, with exceptions for divorce, is that the other qualifications come into view that are not factors in the widower's case. Again, the above reproach clause, but also the one who manages his household well clause has to be considered. Since the husband is the leader of the home, it is very unlikely that a situation would be presented whereby the husband was totally without guilt in the event of a divorce, because the husband's the leader in the home. In divorce, there is almost always, if not always, a moral component, where that, whereas there is not one in the death of a spouse. So in a sense, the cases of the widower and the divorced man are a a false comparison. It's apples and oranges, if you will. Both are still fruit. we are still in the ballpark, but, but they are different kinds of fruit. I want you to understand, please, that it's not as though divorce is an unpardonable sin. Christians, unfortunately, divorce at approximately the same rate as non-Christians. It depends on the year. It bounces back and forth. Some years, our divorce rate actually goes slightly above the general population. And yes, if one is divorced, God will forgive if you go to God for forgiveness. That's not the point. The point that's under the microscope here is whether a divorce disqualifies a man from, listen, from serving in a particular capacity in ministry, in a very specific and particular capacity of elder, bishop, and pastor. And then we'll see later as deacon as well. In most cases, it would. Now, I would not go so far as to assert that there would be no exceptions to the rule. I would not say that. But I will say this, the rule must be established before we can start working on exceptions. Otherwise, the exceptions then become the rule. You have to establish the standard first. Then you can deal with exceptions to the rule. And as to exceptions, I I don't doubt that they exist. But I do doubt that they exist in the numbers that are being exercised today. There are scenarios that I can consider. There have been some very well known pastors whose whose wives have left them in the past, uh, some you know of some you uh, some you know well some you might not have heard of. but I can see circumstances where a, a man could be divorced and still occupy the pulpit um, If a man was divorced, there was minimal, ethical, moral failure on his part. He maintained that, that standard of being above reproach. And he remained unmarried. Let's say a man was divorced by his wife. She left him. He didn't want the divorce. Charles Stanley. Okay, Now you're thinking it, I'll say it. Charles Stanley, several years ago, back in the early 90s. Mrs. Stanley at least according to someone that I know that knows them well, that knew them intimately, Mrs. Stanley developed some mental-emotional problems. She decided she was going to leave Dr. Stanley. He didn't want the divorce. He fought against it. He said, I'll do whatever it takes to keep this marriage together. I'll go to counseling with you. We'll do whatever it takes, but I do not want a divorce. There was no, at least, at least as far as anybody could tell, no moral component there. Nobody was accusing him of doing anything immoral. She was not accusing him of being anything other than neglectful. We have to watch that in the ministry. That he had time for everybody else, but he didn't have time for her. That's what the accusation was. And she's dead now, so Mrs. Pentecost is one that told me that. She was a good friend of the family. Dr. P. and Dr. Stanley are very close. It caused a split in the church. Dr. Stanley wouldn't step down. He said, I'm still the husband of one wife. I haven't broken that marriage bond. Now, it may be broken for me. Now, you may know better than me, but I, I, at one time at least there was a reconciliation. I don't know if it if it's stuck or not. It's not the point tonight. But but uh, it caused a split in the family. As far as I understand, it caused a little bit of a split between even father and son at one time. Both were in the ministry. So you see these things are very emotional. They're, they're very powerful. And they need to be thought out. But I could see... I can see an exception to a divorce situation if a man is still the husband of one wife, provided that there was no serious moral ethical reason that caused the divorce, in which case you would be disqualified under the not handling your family well and then disqualified under the above reproach situation. You see my point? Other factors come into play when it comes to the exceptions. But first we've got to establish the rule. And it's my view that the rule is the rule is married once. That's the most basic understanding. Now listen, let's let's be let me be up front with you. Generally speaking, one will take their view on not a polygamist, faithful to one's present situation, or married once, oftentimes based upon their own personal situation. We can't help it. It's human nature. That's what we do. It's not right. There has to be a correct view, but if you were to search the literature on this, and it would take you a long time, but if you were to search it, you'll find, find people that hold all three of these views. A few less that hold the polygamous view. That's, uh, I don't want to be pejorative, it's, it's not a real strong view, but you're going to find some fine men that will hold to the faithful to one's present way. Well, in other words, he's behaving himself now. Hey, okay? I'm, ha- I'm happily married now, but I've been forgiven. You see, and if God can forgive anything, why can't he forgive divorce? He can. In the same way that he can forgive a medical doctor that does something they ought not to do ethically. But it doesn't necessarily mean, and I say this with all the love of Christ, I am not trying to be mean-spirited whatsoever. It doesn't necessarily mean you can occupy the same office. It doesn't make any worse of a person. It just means that, that that particular office is out of bounds for you. Now, each local church must determine how they'll handle this passage before they call a pastor. It should be discussed at the board level before any situation ever comes up. You can't do these things on the fly. It gets too emotional. It gets way too subjective. A standard has to be set and understood before the process ever begins. And it's not my business, please listen carefully, it's not my business, nor yours, to to force a view on another church, to tell another church how to understand and apply this doctrine. That's, as they say, between them and the Lord. Tonight I speak only for myself, and by virtue of my position for the official Pine Valley position. And but we should we must keep in mind this above reproach clause. Now, one last observation as we get ready to close. On occasion, I've heard this, this concentric circle model being accused of becoming more legalistic as you get closer to the center. And I take exception to that. Because, you see, legalism is not following God's mandates. That's obedience. According to what my Lord said... If you love me, you'll obey me. Legalism is not obedience. Legalism is demanding that someone obey rules that aren't there. That's legalism. So we ought not to uh, we ought not to make that mistake. It would be it would be an immature one to make. At best, it's like a person I know that, that came back and. And called another friend of his legalistic for fleeing fornication. No. You're not legalistic for fleeing fornication. You're obedient by fleeing fornication. And you're not legalistic on calling upon someone else to flee fornication. If you're a good enough friend. You love them. And you're also demonstrating that you love the Lord Jesus Christ by keeping his commandments. If you love me, you will obey me. To follow God's policy is to love Christ, which should be our goal in life.